Over the past several centuries, we, humankind, have been very good at getting hydrocarbons out of the Earth's crust. We've become insanely good at finding them, whether they're beneath the middle of the ocean or the middle of a desert, and then using big drills and pipes and all sorts to extract them. So we have a really impressive set of tools and technologies for doing this. But, as we all know, this has had some pretty bad consequences. However, what if we could take these technologies and either use them to put carbon back underground, or perhaps search for a guilt-free source of energy within the Earth? These are the two topics that we discussed today with our guest, Ruta Carriolito. Ruta is a uh, researcher at the University of Oxford, and she first takes us through carbon capture and storage. So this is, I think, something that will be familiar to many, but Ruta really goes into the, the details of how this carbon sequestration works, how we can take carbon directly from the air or from chimney flues and then bury it safely deep underground. The second thing that we discuss, I think, is a bit fresher. Um, so this is just starting to appear on the radar now. It's June 2023, and it's the idea of hydrogen. OK, so hydrogen is not new, but... For a long time, um, very few people thought that hydrogen occurred naturally within nature. They thought that you either had to create it from uh, water by electrolysis or maybe by steam reformation of, of methane, but it just didn't occur on its own as H2. Now, Ruda takes us through some, frankly, fascinating evidence that it does exist naturally and, and possibly in very large quantities within the Earth. And this is exciting because this could be a, you know, cheap and copious energy source. And it's not completely academic. Ruta is actually also a prospector. She is um, part of a small company that is going out and looking for um, hydrogen within the Earth. So this is a really um, optimistic and enlightening um, story. In fact, you know, along the way, I learned things like, that there's a completely other form of life that I, I wasn't aware of on the Earth. Um, so look out for that. Um, without further ado, I'm James Robinson. This is Multiverses. So um, this is a very optimistic and enlightening conversation. I learn a lot of things. I learn about an entirely new form of life that I'd never heard of. Um, so hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I'm James Robinson. This is Multiverses. Hi, Ruta Carolite. Thanks for joining us. Hi, James. Very nice to, to be here. So geology is is not what first comes to mind, let me put it like that, when people are thinking about the kind of skills that we need to combat climate change. Although many people think a little bit harder and think, oh, actually, there's something here with carbon sequestration, which which I've heard about. And I want to talk about that first and then maybe after that we'll talk about something that i don't think many people will know about which we'll kind of maybe unpack later as a kind of we'll we'll leave that thought hanging but yeah let's first talk about carbon sequestration what is what is the role of um geologists like yourself in putting carbon back into the ground i guess there's a clue there <laughs> yeah no i think i think that's a really interesting question and um 
in, in terms of thinking about geology, what it can do. And I think I, I quite like the sort of um, a thought that I guess a lot of people have that it's sort of hard to hard to say, like where geology comes into the picture. Um, when I was sort of choosing to study geology uh, and I was at school as a teenager, I was sort of like very anxiety ridden about the environment and, you know, like uh, climate change and ecosystem collapse, as I think even more people these days that who are young <laughs> feel that way now. And uh, yeah, I really wanted to do something about it. Like I really wanted to do something environmental. I had no, no idea what it would be. And so I thought like if I study the earth and how it works, and um, probably, you know, I might be able to figure out uh, what to do. <laughs> so it appeared to me that, you know, like going and studying geology and how the earth works would be like a, an obvious first step. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so I went into it without really knowing uh, kind of what I was going to do. But for like, I'll just learn, you know, how things work naturally. And then we can maybe think about how to help it. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of kind of its role, like, I guess, um, in terms of climate change, like geology also does have like a lot to answer for <laughs> because yes. essentially for, you know, through <laughs> our sort of exploration of the resources, we, we have caused climate change or we have caused all kinds of habitat and environmental destruction. But at the same time, like sort of the, the geology and the raw materials that we have on, on the planet is essentially like all we have to work with. <laughs> and and like very understandably, you know, as society of world, we have like used those things for building materials, metals and all kinds of things to kind of build technology and everything that we have out of it. Um, and, you know, that, that has caused a lot of problems as well as actually, you know, like prosperity. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think, there's kind of like two two kind of main main roles of it in the future. Like I think it will all have to obviously continue playing a role because we will continue needing all the raw materials for all the different technology or whatever we might decide to do. Um, you know, maybe like until we start mining asteroids or something, but like we'll have to continue kind of working with uh, with what we have in the subsurface a lot of the time. So yeah, one of the roles is like finding ways of of using these resources in a kind of smarter and better and more effective ways and more sustainable ways. And then a second big part, which is, you know, the, the carbon question is perhaps undoing some of the stuff that we have done without thinking too hard about it. Um, so the fact that we have so much CO2 in the atmosphere is primarily because because we have just taken it out from from the subsurface and, and put it up in mm. the atmosphere. And so, if, I think in terms of the mass balance, and it, it does make a lot of sense uh, to think that to deal with this problem, we may as well consider putting it back in the subsurface. You know where where it came from. And so, yeah, there, there are sort of many different uh, kind of ways of thinking of CO2 sequestration, but geological CO2 sequestration is, is something that, that I work on. And uh, yeah, the, the simple idea of that is that we often have industrial processes that produce CO2 as a byproduct. And so we will, and, and now as, as, as is, we will say burn fossil fuels to, to produce energy, or we will have all kinds of different manufacturing processes that produce CO2. And the CO2 is just vented to the atmosphere. So the idea is to, instead of doing that, to capture the CO2 at the point source, and process it, sort of clean it, and then inject it back in the subsurface underground for a geological storage. So sort of um, essentially go through this process of taking 
a fluid out, which is some kind of hydrocarbon fluid, taking it from it from it what we need, and then putting CO two back mm. underground. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that's uh, the, that the can... geological CO two storage. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out here that that the way you phrase it, it doesn't necessarily sound like you know one might think, oh well, how's that going to take carbon out of the kind of out of circulation in the atmosphere, I guess. Um, but depending on how you play it, you could be and uh, you could be growing a lot of biomass, so growing I don't know things that you then burn basically, and obviously in the growing process, those plants are taking carbon out of the atmosphere and, and sort of building it into their hydrogen, hydrocarbon structures their, their leaves <laughs> their stalks etc you burn that and then you capture as much of the co2 from the flue gases as you can and put that underground and that creates like a kind of yeah net negative i guess movement of, of carbon from, from the air into the crust kind of almost a little bit counterintuitively because you're burning something. But, but you know, when you think about the whole, the, the whole loop, it, it's taking stuff out of circulation. Uh, I, I, I guess that's called BECS, if I'm getting my acronyms yeah. right here. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, how effective... I mean, maybe let's start before we sort of literally dive into the ground. Uh, if, we, if we start... <laughs> Uh, if we start on the kind of flu gases, like how good are we at extracting carbon from or, or CO2, I guess, from those flu gases? Like how much escapes and how, how much do we manage to take out? Yeah, so I think the efficiency of, of extracting um, the CO2 from the flue gas is pretty high and sort of the the kind of the the, the field of development of research is really at like bringing down the cost because obviously this process, well, in, in terms of in, enabling CO2 storage, really what's happening is that, you know, we have industries that operate the way they operate now and, and adding on this addition off, then you also have to like capture the CO2, extract it, and it just is an added cost. And there is no like associated sort of financial gain to it, right? So, so other than, you know, like the potential um, incentives from various like for carbon tax or, or things like that. So sort of legislative um, incentives uh, of, of removing carbon. And so, yeah, the, the big kind of challenge is to make it as efficient and cheap for, um, for capturing and extracting the CO2 from the flue gases. Um, but still, it's essentially, it is always an added cost. You know, it, it is, mm. I guess, like as, as something, um, yeah, as, as an industry, it is not really like a product that you're producing that somebody wants to buy necessarily. It is actually like a kind of waste management program that we have just right. never Im implemented. And now we have to bear the cost of, of implementing it. <laughs> and, and so then no one wants to really do that because, you know, very happily we've been venting it to the atmosphere, but it is kind of sort of somewhat similar to, you know, just like, um, I don't know, like pouring out sewage into the street and like medieval wonders. <laughs> it's like eventually right. somebody has to put in the infrastructure of dealing with yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is the this is the classic tragedy of the commons, right? There's no cost to just doing that at, 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 unless mm -hmm. we create some kind of carbon. And, and and there are you know plans already for you know different sorts of prices on carbon, whether it's taxes or credits or or whatever. 
but I guess, yeah, as you say, that's there's very little incentive for doing this outside of that, right? This is like an outside cost. I suppose there's the other thing worth mentioning, apart from those carbon credits, is a, a lot of companies sort of are actually looking to do these sort of things, even if it hurts the bottom line, which is surprising. But it does seem to be that people are in are investing in this. Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting point that it's it's not so much the efficiency. I think the efficiency. I, I looked this up recently, so it's somewhere around ninety percent, which that sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then you could make it higher, but it's going to cost a lot more. And in some ways, what you really need is is just to make it as cheap as possible. So it's it's kind of like a no brainer to add this on. But yeah, maybe yeah. then take a sort of, yeah, once, and I guess the other expensive thing that we're going to talk about is, is what you do with that carbon once you've, you've kind of concentrated. So you take it out of the flue gases, what happens next? You, you have, do you have like a lot of gas, like you have a lot of gas, I guess, right? Or is it in another yeah. form? What do we do with it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, be- before I go on the storage part, I guess I uh, just... Yeah, I want to make a sort of a, again a comment of kind of because it's this, this expensive thing that we're going to add on to some sort of industry. Like I think the question has really been of like where exactly do we does it make sense to do this, you know? And 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 that has just been changing with time. And so like when when this all started, there like this idea of say green fossil fuels has been sort of quite popular, uh, where you could just continue using fossil fuels to generate energy and then capture the CO2 and store it underground. And then ask kind of, um, I mean, that has been criticized widely and is sort of widely accepted in, in the CO2 sort of sequestration community that probably that's not the best kind of way to move forward because essentially you're just enabling like fossil fuels to continue, um, but with like way like larger cost while we have like way better renewables for, you know, like other technologies like renewables for generating electricity. So something like that, you know, could work technically, but is it the most optimal solution? Probably not. Um, and so then the question is like, where does it actually fit? Where Where is it really needed? So I think some things that kind of really stand out is processes where we don't have like an alternative, like a viable alternative with renewable energy. So things like various mm. industrial sort of applications, for instance, uh, making cement. So making cement mm-hmm. involves taking limestone that has carbon in it and heating it. And the byproduct of that is CO2. And sort of cement is just like this super useful material that we just can't stop using. And there's a lot of, you know, industrializing to do um, in, in, in various countries. Still, so we will just continue, and it adds, it, it accounts to something like eight percent of total like global emissions. That's crazy. Is a really huge part. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. say like uh, really targeting these big industrial kind of processes, and say capturing CO two in a cement plant, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and and so that's mitigating the emissions that we kind of have to, you know, we will have to sort of have them. We don't have a better idea about it uh, right now, you know, other than say like refusing to build new houses for people, which is not really gonna gonna, gonna go well. Um, and and then another part is what you mentioned, so things like Bex, where uh, it actually offers the sort of opportunity of negative emissions, right? Where, where again, mm. like with ver- various other applications, we can think about um, reducing the emissions or perhaps reaching zero emissions, having something something like that as net zero. But in terms of negative emissions, it's then like quite hard. Um, 
and and because we have so much CO2 already in the atmosphere and we will kind of continue there will continue being applications say as you know aviation and things like that will be like hard to phase out entirely we will continue like having some kind of emissions and so like to counteract them and have actually negative emissions whereas you say you know we can we can grow biomass we can burn it and then we can store the the co2 underground is is a sort of uh, i mean in in terms of in terms of strategies that various countries have of reaching net zero vex has been like such a huge part of the commitment safer in ipcc and and you know the paris agreement with the united nations like very many countries put so much weight on vex just because it's very hard to balance uh you know your your sheet otherwise and and to to some degree like i think it there has been an overcommitment to Bex, and it's like, okay, well, you know, we're gonna, and then we're gonna get rid of fifty percent of our emissions by by Bex at some point, mm. and, and and you know, we'll think about how to do that later, and probably not invest in research for a long time, <laughs> so, and yeah. it, it does have that like really great potential, but sort of the exactly the scale of it, I think, and sort of you know remains to be to be kind of seen because in, in on sort of on paper, like of course you could grow a lot of forests technically and then burn the biomass and then sort of store the carbon, but how it plays out in sort of real world and kind of where you're going to have these, you know, managed forests and how it's going to mm. be legislated and managed. And is it actually going to interfere with natural habitat? And are we going to end up in these sort of situations where kind of we create like this legislative framework that encourages say, just, you know, replacing natural woodland with some kind of, um, you know, manage forest and then sort of saying that that's good for the environment. <laughs> like there, there, there are a lot of, I think, things to kind of um, do more work on and research of how exactly this can be something that's like, it doesn't end up having negative consequences uh, to kind of the yeah. scale, I guess, that, that it's proposed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, the I, I kind of have the same reservations about Bex. And I, I think back to... The, the very first podcast I recorded with uh, Casey Hanmer, who is in some ways trying to do something similar. You know, they're trying to create hydrocarbons, but in a carbon neutral way, possibly carbon negative, because they could sort of store some of the hydrocarbons that they create, probably not geologically, but as, as materials. But yeah, so here's kind of... One of the things that stood out for me from that conversation was that photosynthesis is not super efficient <laughs> compared to PV. And we know, you know, photovoltaics are about, you know, 20 to 30% efficient. We might be able to push them a bit higher, but I think probably the focus should be just on bringing down, bringing down costs. Although there's lots of promise in tariffs guides and things like this that, 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 that will probably increase the efficiency. But in any case, yeah, like thirty percent, you know, twenty to thirty percent efficient is 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 pretty good mm-hmm. for something that's so simple and cheap to produce. Now, yeah, his point was, yeah, PV is about a thousand times more efficient at converting uh, sunlight into uh, energy than uh, plants. Now, plants obviously convert sunlight very directly into hydrocarbons which is pretty cool um and you need to do more work with pv and you know cases like there was or is that will 
will basically strip out carbon dioxide from the air. We'll uh, also get moisture from the air so that we get water. We'll electrolyze that water again, all using PV. And we'll use this all to, to make methane. And there's other people with, with, with similar, similar plants. And yeah, it's, it involves a lot more work, but it should be orders of magnitude more efficient in terms of like land area for the amount of hydrocarbons that we can create compared to BEX. So yeah, that just makes me think, well, you know, what? clearly BEX is important and it's kind of an easy thing to get running. Uh, and we can use mm -hmm. it like with a lot of existing kind of power stations and things like that as well. We can just grow this stuff, put, I guess, the the the, the correct carbon, um, like the correct technology in the flue uh, to extract the carbon. And so I think it, you know, merits um, certainly investment, but maybe air to fuel is a little bit underinvested. Uh, and one final thought, like uh, that, just struck me the other day, is like you know, plants. If plants were more efficient, they would be darker. They would be black, right? <laughs> if they were better, <laughs> right? Like, and yeah, nature's done a wonderful job, but it's not just optimizing for them to convert energy into, uh, you know, sunlight into hydrocarbons. Like it's it's balanced a lot of things. Whereas PVs, we've yeah. designed that to, to do just that. So I don't know, a, lot, a bit of a my kind of musings on this, but I don't know, yeah, if you have kind of similar you know uh, thoughts or um disagree with any of that well yeah i mean i would certainly agree that you know like producing energy from pv and then just using the electricity will be way you know more efficient than growing plants and then using that for energy somehow but but i guess like the the fundamental difference there is uh, is the kind of I guess like because because the the sort of choice of biomass here is, is not yeah. because it's extremely efficient at providing you energy, but because there is that aspect of it where you can take the carbon, capture the CO two, and then store it somewhere. And so if yeah. we're just using PV for energy, that's great because you know it's just renewables. But if, if we're also like producing some kind of hydrocarbon from it, from say air and and you know that energy. Uh, I guess like the the question I have is sort of how how does that help with removing the carbon? <laughs> you know, it is like uh, I guess if we just you know like yeah. surely like using electricity. Like I think uh, the thinking here is that you know at some point where we have such abundant electricity that we just have don't know what else to do with it, and we can also make sort of hydrocarbons but like i guess like sort of i, I don't feel like with the, there's any shortage of hydrocarbons right now that we need to like right now make them in more expensive or more strange ways like that and and essentially like it went, when you make biofuels you know you're, you're kind of taking the co2 out of the atmosphere you may you're putting it into fuel and then again you're emitting it so it's a sort of like it's you know, mm. kind of a single loop and then it's back out again rather than you remove it from the system um, so yeah, yeah, I guess like I, I don't see it so much as like a sequestration technology, more and more just alternative ways of making fuels. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. It is it's it's carbon neutral if you use PV as part of an air to fuel process, but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily sequestering. But you you could I guess do that, but it probably would work quite differently to how it works with the. The kind of flu stack stuff or maybe not actually i guess it's kind of similar like you could imagine doing an air to fuel thing that kind of combines direct air capture so you take some of your carbon and you you combine that with hydrogen from electrolysis to create methane that's something you burn again 
that that part's carbon neutral. But you take some of your carbon and you just, you know, you compress it. You do you do the things we're going to talk about in a bit, and you and you put that back yeah. onto the earth. So I think it, it it could, like, it seems like it could. I it seems like it could work. And and the big kind of advantage is just like it should be a lot more efficient than just growing plants. And then you get around the the problems that you mentioned of, oh, are we just going to end up with lots of like monolithic um, monoculture patches, which doesn't sound so great. Whereas, yeah. you know, the alternative might be let's rewild a lot of, a lot of areas and, you know, of the, let's say of the, every hundred acres that we would have had as kind of monoculture, we'll have like 99 acres rewilded and one acre with like a PV plant. And that might be the same, yeah, producing the equivalent amount of energy. But I just mentioned something here that we've not really talked about, which is direct air capture, which is yeah. kind of like, yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, that, because this is another place where carbon sequestration is, is kind of key. Yeah, so I guess like yeah, it is sort of serving the same purpose than uh, you know as as becks, but instead of using plants, then then we strip CO two from the air, and I guess yeah, you know that, that'll be the same as like what are we gonna do with the CO two? Are we gonna make fuels, or are we gonna just straight up store it somewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, so that again, that technology, um, there, there's lots of a lot of research in it, and um, and again, like it is, it is effective. It is just very expensive in terms of the energy mm-hmm. need. I think it works best where you can you can have like essentially free energy, like in geothermal kind of areas where you can have like energy from heat. So say in Iceland or, or places like that, the costs are significantly lower. Uh, but I think right now it, it is it, it is in this kind of R and D stage where we are uh, sort of developing ways of doing it and trying to bring down the cost with like yeah. essentially the same view in mind that you know in the future uh, we will like the, the primary use of it really is for negative emissions we will just deploy it for taking CO2 underground and putting it off, off the atmosphere and putting it underground and I guess like like in sort of my understanding of say BEX and, and direct air capture is that well, well, say direct air capture doesn't really like then produce energy; it just it just consumes it. Bex has yeah. you know some kind of purpose of of producing energy, but in in some way it's almost like a byproduct. Like like both of those ideas are really primarily about you know capturing carbon with some kind of efficiency from the air, and and then storing it. And so I think like this kind of world where, you know, where we have like we have renewables and solar. Uh, to to such sort of degree that we have like so much electricity yeah. that we that essentially like that that just just developing solar to that level like solves so many of our, of our problems already and and so like we have like that, that will be a way cheaper and better energy than the energy we get from burning this biomass and so the the role of burning the biomass will kind of, like you know in terms of efficiency that will no way compete with solar but but yeah, the purpose of it will be just so we keep taking the CO2 out, out of the atmosphere and, and you know, yeah. the same with direct air capture. And then both of those things kind of then really fit. And I guess, like, hopefully, like, if yeah, if we have this kind of situation where solar is so cheap, then direct yeah. air capture suddenly becomes something we can do and then we can do away with, like, trying to plant forests. Yeah, that would be, that would be pretty good. And so I think yeah. like, and even like then, you know, using like air to fuel is essentially, I think, in the same world where, where energy is just from solar 
and we don't have yeah. to worry about this anymore. And we're just thinking of new ways of putting CO2 underground or maybe utilizing it from in some kind of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's right. I both the air to fuel and the direct air capture, they kind of live and die by energy becoming so cheap that you know, you, you kind of you can just throw it away, right? It's and there is really good reason to think that we're we're on that path with renewables. I'm hoping to talk with Rupert Way, who was an author. He's 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 at the Oxford Modern School, so he's based not too far from you, where they they kind of look at the economics of all these things, and they you know they looked at just how much the price of renewable uh, energy had come down. Uh, over the last few decades, and it had exceeded every prediction. <laughs> and they were like, "Well, mm-hmm. why is this?" And it's just that, that that the learning rate with renewables has been so great. And I think partly that's because renewables are these, you know, solar in particular are these kind of small units that you produce in the millions and millions of quantities. And every time you build a factory, and you're building many many factories, and you're you know also iterating those factories, that gives you like a process of you know an ability to improve things and. That creates this learning rate for that for something like every doubling of your installed solar capacity, the costs fall by, I think maybe fifteen percent or more, which just means that you know we're we're on a kind of a massive downward trend, and that might make things or if it does continue, it, it will make things like direct air capture and air to fuel not just economically feasible, but you know, really cheap in terms of air to fuel, I mm-hmm. think. Like it, it could be cheaper to do that than to create your fuels from from you know in the in the current ways at least. I think worth mentioning though that yeah, the reason why it makes sense to start with adding carbon sequestration to, you know, Bex plants and and as you said, like existing concrete production facilities is that, and this is an obvious point, just the CO2 there is, is, is in super high concentrations, <laughs> whereas mm-hmm, in the yeah. air, we're in like the 400 parts per million. So it's, you have to go mm-hmm. through, you just have to churn through a lot of air if you're using direct air capture. And, and, and that's just, you know, you think about those fans turning, right? And the kind of, yeah, yeah pulling off these just few molecules in every thousand or something, then... But yeah, yeah, like I think all, all of this tech unit has its place kind of in the sort of timeline of how we go in decarbonizing and, and when it should be applied. And certainly, yeah, you know, where say with cement, I think it's like just super obvious. We we have these plants and we need we need concrete. We, you know, we can continue needing it. We will be producing it. And right now it's 100 percent of it is just being transported to the atmosphere. And so like it just makes a lot of sense to just not do that, you know, to capture the CO2 and store it. And it's something that we can do immediately. It, it's just, you know, like we can do it right now and make things way better immediately. And then I think like it's, it's super important to, to work on all technologies like direct air capture. Because eventually, you know, if when we decarbonize all the easy things and it's just kind of it's always like the biggest wins are the easiest ones to say, like in in the UK decarbonization, we just shut down all the coal plants. That was quite easy. Also, they were like really old and kind of like reaching the the, the end stage of their life. And that sort of decreased the emissions quickly, like by a lot. So you can meet your targets like that. But also, you know, they were just out. They're going out anyway. Um, And so you keep kind of doing that and we're like you know, continue like uh, with things that are like a bit more obvious and say like capturing CO2 from cement plants. 
And eventually you'll get to a place where we still have a lot of CO2 that we already emitted. We still have emissions that are really hard to kind of um, sort of, uh, yeah, prevent like aviation, for example. And then, then you will like really need your uh, direct air capture. And so hopefully you have been doing research and R&D into this for like last 30 years. So then we have these pretty efficient machines by the time we really need to deploy them. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of like how, where I think say direct air capture comes in and, you know, maybe yeah, air to fuel technology while say some of the kind of geological CO2 storage and the stuff I've been kind of working on, like I feel this is just like, we can do it right now. Like there's these things we mm. can do right now and it'll be better right now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't depend on us developing anything new. <laughs> okay, that's cool. I think that's a good like lead in because we spent a lot of time sort of above the ground. But sort of, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, how do we get this? We've, we've taken the flu, we've extracted carbon dioxide from flu gases. Like how do we get it underground? What, what is that process? Yeah. Yeah. So again, the idea of this is is kind of quite simple. You you just you have CO2, you pressurize it and then you use these wells. Kind of, it's it's kind of very similar process, you know, exploring for hydrocarbons, but kind of reverse. You have wells drilled into the subsurface and you can inject fluids in there and and sort of they, they will be within the pore spaces of rocks. And I guess like, yeah, like I, I think a, a sort of a good way to to think about where is it that we're proposing to to put this gas and it does it doesn't sound super intuitive, you know, like often it, it sounds to people that you do we're just gonna like create these like pressurized chambers underground and it's mm. like a really kind of unstable, crazy situation. Like why do you want to pump things underground? <laughs> um, but yeah, like a good way to kind of think about that is to maybe like think about what about what like already is underground, like what is it that we're mm-hmm. actually dealing with in, in, in the subsurface. And um, yeah, so, you know, we have sort of kilometers of rocks in the subsurface that all of them have like a lot of pore spaces. So these kind of little holes uh, and, and fractures in them that are interconnected. And so everything uh, below the surface all the rocks have actually like a lot of volume in them that's not just rock but the, there is open space and and all of that space is filled with water so like everything is water saturated and there's kind of like a surprising amount, amount of water underground like i mean it's it's more um i think people associate mostly it with sort of so we, we know about groundwater and aquifers that we use for drinking and sort of that tends to be a kind of more shallow water and um, but yeah, this kind of shallow fresh water is like only like a fraction of water that we have in a subsurface. And so most of it is actually quite saline because if when, when you keep going deeper, the water is still there, but it sort of, sort of moves slower. And, and because it moves so slow, it has more time to sort of dissolve various minerals from the rocks. Mm. It's like salty and briny and not really good for, you know, and any, any sort of applications like drinking. And um, so, yeah, so the whole of the surface is just this kind of hydro, hydrological system that's saturated with water and there's a lot of space in it. Um, and yeah, like in, in some of the areas where, where which, which is suitable for, say, injection, it's something like 30% of total volume of the subsurface is just like these spaces with water. Uh. And so, like, yeah, like the, the whole of the surface is, is already like this kind of pressurized hydrological system which is mostly water, but also like it contains all kinds of other things in it. So there's already like a lot of gases dissolved in this water. There's like naturally 
nitrogen dissolved, there's CO2 that's naturally already also dissolved there. There's like methane. And, you know, in some parts, this is also like where we have hydrocarbons and oil and gas. It is essentially just more water, but with like a little bit then of organic matter. And then there's hydrocarbons within this water that, you know, that we'll kind of drill into and extract. And so, yeah, like the subsurface naturally is just like this kind of multi-phase fluid system. There's, you know, like oil and, and gas and some of the gas is dissolved and some of the gas is in the gas phase. And uh, yeah, there, and so the idea is that we can inject CO2 into this water and it will dissolve in it. it you know, it, it will dissolve in it. We can kind of predict how much you can put in in a subsurface and some of it will dissolve, some of it will be stored in a gas phase. And, and yeah, we're targeting uh, sort of these really porous rocks, sandstones that have a lot of mm -hmm. space filled with water, and uh, and also in particular, they, like the areas that are suitable, they would have seal rocks, so some kind of really impermeable rocks like shales on top. Mm -hmm. So so then the gas that is there in a gas phase primarily kind of migrates laterally and doesn't sort of come up back to the surface, and um, and there, there there is just a lot of this volume. Uh, in general, and also like a surprising amount of, of volume available where you have both the good rock for kind of the flow of CO2 and also seal on top of it. Um, that, yeah, th there is just a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, okay. So this is interesting. Like we're... I Probably the, the picture for many people might be, let's just find like a big cave or something and put it yeah. in there. But what we're saying is we're, we're actually going to find, it's kind of like porous. So it's kind of like sponge-like, but it's rocky. So it's just rock with lots yeah. of holes kind of, and there are there's water in there. We're going to inject this um, compressed CO2. So it's, it's, in, it's in quite an interesting f phase when it's compressed. So it's like super critical, right? So it's neither quite yeah it, it's beyond the point where the distinction between liquid and gas makes sense it behaves in some way like a liquid and, and, and in some ways like a gas we've we've compressed it that, that much and then it goes into yeah it dissolves into the water that's kind of distributed through these rocks and then on top of that you're also looking for a place where there's like a nice uh impermeable layer so it's not going to kind of bubble up cool okay yeah take us yeah, so you said that this is, I mean, standing back, you know, if we didn't have geologists and if we if we didn't have an oil and gas industry, it would be probably quite hard to find those sort of places, right? That doesn't, but but I'm guessing that because we've invested so much over the last, you know, century plus in finding uh, underground deposits of things. Like, do we have very good technologies for for finding the appropriate places and getting to them? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it it, it is just like so similar in a way, you know, to to like exploration of oil and gas. That um, I guess it, it it is strange to me often that that the idea seems so crazy to a lot of people because it is just literally the same, but instead of out, you're putting it in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like obviously 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 there's engineering challenges it's a different phase and methane it has different buoyancy there's different behavior and so like you know there's the kind of like these engineering problems that people are addressing but like it, it's not like a crazy idea you know we're not extending it to the moon <laughs> but yeah uh, we have explored the subsurface really well for oil and gas and so there's you know seismic imaging of the subsurface 
we can like predict really well where there's good seals and for like for a lot of it also depleted gas fields where the hydrocarbons have already been extracted you can use the same field to then inject the co2 back in and um, so both the infrastructure even the pipelines that we have mm. and also it's kind of under understanding where to put it some of the wells can be like retrofitted as well it's mm. just very kind of useful for it and um, also like there, there are differences again in sort of how say methane behaves in the subsurface and co2 um, but yeah, as you said, it's like CO2 uh, acts as supercritical fluid at sort of uh, subsurface temperatures and pressures. And that, again, like works out really in, in kind of storage favor because when it's supercritical fluid, it becomes denser than water. So, mm -hmm. and say like with natural gas, like the, the density mm -hmm. of it is quite low. So we, we always have this kind of buoyant phase of, say, methane that sits above the water and sort of is trapped then by the seal. Um, and and yet yet still you know we we do have a lot of natural gas in the subsurface that has been there for millions of years until we drill these holes and taken it out. And uh, while well, with CO2 because of it, it, it is denser, it starts kind of you know sort of move like it, it doesn't want to necessarily come up. It sort of starts is even like convective sort of system with water where it sinks down and kind of circulates in in, in mm -hmm. the aquifer. So yeah, it it is. It is different, uh, you know, from from hydrocarbons, but not in sort of really unexpected ways. That uh, that that is like a really sort of technical issue, I guess. Um, yeah, and I guess another kind of way. Oh, this is this is something that I've focused. Uh, I've done my PhD on is like as I said, you know, we we have these natural analogs like like natural gas fields, but also we do have natural CO2 fields. So already field like these, you know, subsurface fields in where CO2 is in a gas phase and is trapped there. And, and so normally like uh, the source of it is some sort of like mantle activity. So it's some sort of kind of like volcanic source of it, right? We have some sort of uh, volcanic um, intrusion in the subsurface, or maybe there's a fault um, where the mantle is then connected with with our kind of more shallow subsurface and so the co2 gas has migrated from the depths and has been just trapped and so there are these co2 fields and people have discovered them because obviously they're like looking for oil and gas and then they drilled into a co2 well and like really unha <laughs> unhappy <laughs> discovery <laughs> and, and 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 then you know we can go and study these and sort of try and understand what happened and and we, we you know we we know that they have existed on the subsurface for millions of years, like associated mm -hmm. with say like volcanic activity that was active at the time, and and so and so yeah we have like like I guess it's it's a really great sort of natural experiment on timescales that we can't really sort of replicate in the lab or various field studies by injecting CO2 mm -hmm. and seeing what happens, where we can find evidence that the source of these gases. Um, you know, they, they have been sourced many, many years ago and they still are in the subsurface. Um, so, yeah, it mm. sort of just really helps to build a lot of confidence that this is something that we can do. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because, you know, we, we know hydrocarbons like stay under the ground generally unless we kind of pull them up. But, yeah, there, there must be there must be the worry that, that putting CO2 underground maybe despite, you know, all of our beliefs could it just kind of bubble up or you know but you're saying okay well no there are lots of cases where co2 is produced naturally underground and we come across it and we like you know have it we know that it must have been there for for some time i guess yeah yeah 
And that's also super interesting so that we can basically kind of use some of the existing wells and things and just run them in reverse almost. Uh, does that work for, is that a kind of special case or are there a lot of places where that could work? Um, well, it's more the pipeline. Some of the pipeline can be reused, essentially, so the pre depending on how you transport the CO2, um, whether mm -hmm. it's liquid or gas phase. So it's like pressure differences. Um, but yeah, some, like a lot of the oil and gas pipe, pipe infrastructure can be reused for CO2. And um, yeah, in terms of wells, often, I guess, like, I suppose like the easiest way to the, the easiest way to store CO2 would be into saline aquifers. Definitely, I think it's, it would be something that um just just because uh, where there isn't already hydrocarbons so it would be great to drill new wells but yeah also like there people have used existing mm. oil and gas wells for for injection and things like that so yeah a, a lot a lot of it can be reused um the main i think um in terms of infrastructure and and sort of financing all of this and and making all of this happen i think the main challenge is that again, we're like talking about some kind of infrastructure that's really large scale. And there's like a few uh, different tech, expensive like tech that it needs to kind of all happen at the same time and then yeah. be connected and then all be like economically viable for, for like a long time. So you need like some kind of capture plant where you're gonna, you know, you're gonna commit. Essentially yeah. then sometimes the problem is like, are we gonna have enough CO2? <laughs> you know, if, if we have, the pipeline and we start injecting it but like where is the source of it going to be so is there going to be like enough plants that are capturing it and sending yeah. it to the storage facility at a rate uh, that that sort of needed sustainable rate for you know decades so essentially everything all of that needs to evolve at the same time you need like all the capture plants the yeah. pipeline infrastructure for transport and the whole storage and the monitoring and so i think that has proven like really difficult to develop everything at the same time especially when it sort of relies on industry to do it and, you know, have some kind of like financial incentives and, and security about, about their, their business models. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's a really good point. Uh, again, it's sort of a point of divergence. One of the things I think that's just been, again, so that's made solar uh, in particular, but, you know, also winds just works so well is, you know, I can have a solar panel on my roof, but it also makes sense to put a solar panel on like, you know, you know, an Amazon depot, it makes sense to build like a thousand, you know, hectare solar farm. Like it just works on so many scales. So it's kind of easy to get going as it were. Whereas, yeah, car these big kind of carbon sequestration projects are big, right? You're drilling, I don't know, hundreds of meters underground. You need, you know, lots of pipeline. That infrastructure can be re reused at least, but, you know, these are, hundred million dollar plus projects to go you know for a single one to get going so i think we've got something like i don't know of order 50 that are operational and they're pulling out of order well less than a i think is it like i think less than 100 million tons of carbon dioxide a year where we're putting in you know 37 or so billion tons a year from from other sources so yeah, yeah, yeah. relatively still relatively small and there's more in the pipeline but it's yeah like you said i think it's just hard to you, yeah you, this is not something that's going to bubble up in terms of just like lots of people deciding they're going to do it and like small financing and things like it's something where there needs to be kind of top-down mandates and really big incentives for big investments 
Yeah, for sure. Like it needs some sort of, you know, like a regulatory framework and essentially, yeah, it, it has to be like a government type of policy and, and project. But, you know, we're going we're gonna to somehow incentivize this. And this is also going to be sustainable in terms of, you know, whatever legislation for decades so that. Um, and so th- I think that part has been like very difficult uh, to kind of coordinate. And you know, because, because even the opinion of, of various governments has just been very different whenever the government changes <laughs> of whether we mm. want to support this technology or we don't. And as you say, it's like way easier to support something like renewables that is sort of like very, yeah, you can, you can, you know, like the scale of it, it, it works on a small scale and a large scale. Well, this is something that's only going to work on a large scale. Um, but yeah, there's like essentially right now there is this project called uh, the Northern Lights project in the North Sea that's kind of run in Norway, where it seems mm. like uh, it's it's starting to have that infrastructure where there's like different companies as well as like the the state of uh, uh, well the government of Norway are creating the infrastructure and it's like a business model where different kind of different industries can sell their CO2 for storage. And because there is like a carbon tax in Norway, it, it's sort of like it's creating now a system where, where it would work, where you could have like enough CO2 because there are many users that might want to sell it and they're incentivized to sell it. And then it is kind of like a business model for, for the storage, uh, you know, part of the chain to kind of earn money from it, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, something like that, I guess, uh, is is kind of how this would work in, in practice, yeah. But yeah, okay, I guess like yeah. the main point I have is, is that there is just like no shortage of space underground for storage, but like making it all work in terms of like economy and industry and like these chains, interconnected chains of industry is like has been the difficult part for sure <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's the key message right that we know how to do this we're doing this we can do it at even greater scale you know in terms of engineering requirements but it's just getting the financing in place so people shouldn't say oh carbon capture that's like that's a moonshot right it well maybe it's an economic moonshot but it's it's like something we you know the technology is absolutely down yeah, but also like I mean, it it is a good I guess like evolution of the concept because again like as I've said in the early days, there's been this concept of like okay, well we're just gonna continue burning fossil fuels and build this whole huge industry to to sequester the CO2 and you know it has been questioned whether this is like the most efficient thing to do really. And so if you keep kind of developing like what exactly is the model of this and what's like the optimal way of doing it, that does make sense. I think eventually you can, you know, you get to a point where it becomes something that makes sense in the, in the whole society kind of in the, in the, in hmm. the economy. <laughs> so I think it's made in that way. Yeah. Cool. All right. I think let's talk about something else, which is also <laughs> related to geology <laughs> and climate, climate change, but probably less known. And so hydrogen, there's a lot of excitement or there's been a lot of excitement around hydrogen for for many years and kind of talk about a hydrogen economy. And we can talk about how that economy would work. But I think one thing that, that mostly people have agreed on is that the way that we'd run that is by, you know, the optimal way of doing that would be electrolyzing water creating hydrogen using abundant abundant renewable energy um which is becoming cheaper and cheaper uh, to make that that model work 
There's obviously other ways and people will be familiar with, you know, you can get hydrogen from methane. That's not really that great, but, you know, uh, there's lots of other ways of creating hydrogen. But sort of the the hopes, I guess, have been set on this kind of electrolysis model. But, you know, that that requires a lot of energy, which you could be using to actually put in, you could be putting that into the electricity grid to do other things. It, you, it requires a lot of electrolyzers, which are, you know, expensive to build and, you know, not not completely efficient, maybe 70% efficient as well. But there is, there's another thing on the scene, which people won't know about, which is hydrogen from the ground. So firstly, you know, does this, you know, I, I was reading on the kind of National Renewable Energy Laboratory website, of the US, it says hydrogen does not typically exist. It used to say, in fact, hydrogen does not freely exist in nature at all. Just a couple of months ago, it said that. So there is this kind of this long, long been a belief that hydrogen just doesn't exist as you know H two as a molecule on its own naturally. But I think you're going to say that that's not the case. So yeah, yeah. Please kind of tell us: <laughs> is there hydrogen yeah, out there? Is there hydrogen in the crust naturally? Yeah, so yeah, I think it, it is a really sort of exciting now uh, field of research of yeah, looking, as you say, for a natural hydrogen that occurs just like oil and gas or CO2 that we know we naturally see in the subsurface in, in this like molecular form as H2. And it's a fairly new idea and people haven't really thought about exploring for it before. And yeah, to, to some degree, yeah, I guess like there, you know, people didn't maybe think it exists at all. But for most parts, it, even people who thought that it exists, like didn't quite think that it would exist in kind of places and quantities where it make any sense for us to try and like use it, you know, as 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 a resource. And we start really finding a lot of evidence to think otherwise right now. So it it is becoming this like really interesting kind of research area and exploration area already. Of yes, uh, so compared, you know, to to other ways of of, of um, making hydrogen, like I guess the, the majority of hydrogen that we use now, and and there is a lot of demand for hydrogen. It is it is like a multi billion uh, dollar industry, even without sort of using hydrogen in various kind of uh, ways that we see in the future, and we can debate about you know how we might use it in the future, whether it's gonna be used uh, as you know for transport or not you know obviously but like right now we we use it uh, for various again just industrial processes and uh, primarily like making fertilizers so making ammonia for for fertilizing and so yeah so there's ammonia a few is like, so ammonia i guess is just like nitrogen mixed with hydrogen basically and we get the hydrogen yeah. in different ways yeah yeah, and so so right now we we get the nitrogen from the air and we ha- get the hydrogen from hydrocarbons. So yeah, we kind of remove the hydrogen from hydrocarbons through like steam methane forming. And again, CO two is vented. The hydrogen we use for something that we need the hydrogen for. And again, that that constitutes already like without any sort of like thinking about future hydrogen economies or or something like that to about two percent of of global emissions. So mm. if we can do something about that and and not use this hydrogen from hydrocarbons that would be excellent and it could be using uh green hydrogen but yes yeah, as, as you said this again like like 
producing um, hydrogen at mass scale using electricity lives again in the same world as various other technologies of where we have just really uh, sort of uh, vast amounts of cheap renewable energy. Um, yeah. But yeah, right right now that is expensive. And so the cost of that is, um, you know, predicted to fall in the future. But if we could just get hydrogen from the ground that is not associated with carbon at all, mm. um, and the production of that would be way cheaper, um, that, that, you know, would be excellent. That would be a great way to solve this kind of 2% of global emission problems to start with. And however the hydrogen economy would evolve in the future, we could see, you know, where that fits and in in the place. But yeah, so the idea of this this geological hydrogen and like where does it come from and why did we never mm. know about this, I think is quite yeah. a, an interesting yeah. question. Um yeah, so I can I can talk about how like how it is produced in, in the earth and yeah, maybe I'll touch a little bit about kind of how we also like learned about it in, in kind of mm -hmm. academia because yeah, my my focus uh, and sort of work with it has been from this more academic perspective that didn't really have anything to do with resources. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of been a new idea that we can maybe actually explore it for, for the society. Um, but yeah, so there's like two main ways of how it's produced. And so one of the ways is, is water rock reactions. So it's a sort of reaction um, where water reacts with this kind of volcanic rock, a type of rock that is really iron rich, these sort of ultramafic rocks. Mm -hmm. And and they'll produce this uh, mineral called serpentine and, and hydrogen is a byproduct of that. And so, you know, we have known about these reactions for a long time, but so they, they will happen in various places where these kind of mantle rocks can be um, it sort of interactive waters, so potentially like mid-ocean spread ridges where, where you have kind of like deep mantle rocks and water sort of circulating or subduction zones and, and things like that. So yeah, this it's basically, process is oxidation, right? It's it's like rusting of the the rocks, and so yes, essentially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the oxygen gets stripped off the hydrogen and makes the the rocks kind of rusty. Although you'd think that would make them red, but I guess it makes them green. It <laughs> yeah. creates this serpent, and I think. But anyway, <laughs> it's a kind of rusting, I suppose, to sort of make it more prosaic. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah so come on. So yeah, so and kind of the importance of, of you know the production of hydrogen in this process like has first been discovered in, in the 1970s, where people have predicted that there should be these sort of things at the bottom of the ocean, these kind of vents where we have the kind of uh, um, hydrothermal fluids coming out of the seabed. And then in the 70s, for the first time on Sakata Cruise, they, they observed these, and they are these like really interesting features, uh, generally because they're kind of at if we're thinking about like the ecosystems at the bottom of the ocean, like the deeper you go, the kind of the less life there is, it's more energy constrained. Mm. So we have these sort of really energy constrained environments where there's not a lot of biodiversity and things like move very slowly. And yeah, these hydrothermal vents that I think like many people will have seen in various nature documentaries or photos of are these kind of uh, these sort of black chimneys, kind of these smoke smoking chimneys uh, at the bottom of the sea that are associated with fluids coming from depths that are, are rich in various like metals and and all kinds of bioavailable uh, molecules. And they are these really fascinating ecosystems. Uh, and because what happens is essentially what you need is some kind of source of heat, which will, in, in you know, in the case of 
all these vents is to do with um, kind of the heat from the mantle and the spreading of, of the ocean floor. And so you, ha you have this heat that kind of creates this kind of circulating system in the fluids and the rocks. Again, as I said, you know, all the rocks are in the, yeah, at the bottom of the sea and, and below the sea are saturated with water. And so you start circulating this really uh, hot fluid and it starts then leaching like minerals and elements out of the rocks. And there's all kinds of reactions happening. And it's a sort of like hot pot of creating things. Um, and so around these then like uh, events, you have these really kind of interesting, diverse ecosystems where um, like in this kind of sort of desert type of <laughs> almost environment, uh, but, you know, submarine suddenly have these like live hotspots. And so people have started studying them and found this kind of really fascinating thing that there are uh, microbial uh, microbial organisms that use hydrogen as their primary energy source. So, mm. and essentially the, it, it has been like this discovery of this kind of second type of life, if, if you will, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, because like our understanding of life has always been that, you know, we have the primary production of energy from photosynthesis and this is, you uh -huh. know, the plants and algae. And th you, you, that's kind of the, the very base of kind of the, you know, the chain uh, of the food and chain. That, and that uses... very... Sorry, Sorry. And obviously that uses oxygen, right? Like, yeah. And, and not hydrogen. So it's kind of surprising <laughs> to find that we've got these microbes. And, and was this like just a discovery back then that, that there were these other kinds of microbes that were using yeah, hydrogen? It has been just, yeah, a huge discovery because we're like, okay, well, you know, we, we're, there's like the energy from the sun and, uh, you know, and it's combined with CO2 and you can make these like organic hydrocarbons. And then actually uh, we have, and so the further you are from the sun, the more difficult it is for life to have mm. energy. And then suddenly like it's kind of this, you know, alternative to the sun, we have hydrogen and you can combine it with say sulfate. You can essentially like remove that electron from hydrogen and use it as energy to kind of produce food, if you will, for microbes. So yeah, there mm. are then all these microbial and it's called chemosynthetic life rather than photosynthetic mm. life because it uses this chemical energy from the earth. And, you know, that was like fascinating because it's, it's sort of like, you know, we had this understanding of how life exists and kind of the ecosystem chain. It's like, oh, and okay, there's like a different ecosystem now that has different energy source. And it kind of opened a lot of questions of, uh, well, you know, how, how, how do, what do we think about then? Like, what's the impact on origin of life? Like, could life have originated in any sort of places? Or also like, how does it work? If we think about other planets, could we have systems like that? You know, we're in say in Mars for, well, not so much the, the vents, but generally if you're thinking about the subsurface, if we can't have life on the surface, maybe like deep in the earth, you can have like hydrogen, you know, dependent life. So, yes, yeah, so and, and so the, the hydrogen question that become really important because that if that is a fuel for life, that is sort of like, well, it's interesting to then quantify it and, and understand, like, what are the production rates of all of this? And so the vents, I guess, like, you know, have, have been cool. And then I think only in like something like 2013, people also in the kind of in the community of sort of um, in like oceanography and stuff have discovered that actually it's not only around the vents. But if you go on a subsurface, there's all of these microbial communities living in the pore spaces there and rocks still eating hydrogen and, you know, like have their whole ecosystem going on. And so that kind of really, like again, like expanded our understanding of what's like inhabited, I guess, on the planet. So it turns out then there's a lot of the subsurface also is a biosphere and it's powered by hydrogen. So this, yeah, water, rock reaction, uh, hydrogen. 
then you know has been kind of like studied a lot in in the kata communities mostly to do with trying to understand you know biology trying to understand the kind of significance of origin of life and like astrobiology like in particular like really trying to understand like whether these kind of systems could exist on other planets and what we could expect in there and um, so yeah so like i mean a lot of people have known about it you know since the 70s but again we're talking about uh, produ producing hydrogen in some kind of sea vent or you know like mm. in poor spaces it, it doesn't necessarily sound like this is something that we could like tap into and use right <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, and so, is... so that's yeah. <laughs> so I was just going to say it is like uh, I know it's like I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but it is it is so interesting that there is this kind of other yeah other energy source for life because I think everything on the surface, right? We we all get our food from the sun one way or another, right? It's all whether you're a lion, right? You're, yeah. <laughs> you trace that food chain back; it gets down to plants, and they're getting their energy from the sun. But yeah, so the, I feel like there's like a, a great sci-fi novel to be written here about, you know, <laughs> beings who are living underneath the earth, never seen the sun, but uh, getting all their energy from chemosynthesis. Uh, yeah, that's that's just so interesting. But yeah, as you say, yeah, it doesn't, so far, like, okay, so I guess we know from these ocean, we know from that there's microbes that are living off hydrogen. We can see this hydrogen. We, we know it's present from these vents, but, you know, kind of, yeah doesn't necessarily seem to solve our problems of using hydrogen in industry and fertilizer creation and so on uh because not easy like not easy yeah, to get well, those things and like <laughs> need to steal it you know from the microbes because oh, yeah, you know the, these the ecosystems thrive because the hydrogen available is definitely not a lot of spare but you know going around is consumed in this energy right. exactly. so they're eating this right yeah they're having our yeah. lunch <laughs> Um, yeah, but so yeah, at, at sort of around the same time also, so this is kind of like talking about the oceans and then at the sort of same time, there's, you know, this research going on in the subsurface of the continents and kind of what's going on in, as I, you know, I've been talking about this water that is in the subsurface and the question also has been of like just how far the water goes and like, you know, how like sort of, because as you keep going down, uh, with depth, I guess these pore spaces and fractures and rocks, they keep getting, because of pressure, like sort of, uh, they keep getting smaller and like, can you like have water in there and is it actually circulating if, if you if you have it? And so we've had these observations and it's also like subsurface is like such a kind of relatively like underexplored, I guess, territory because it's just so hard to get samples from very deep, right? Like it's very hard to access directly. But like some of the, these really interesting observations have come from really deep mines. So for instance, in South Africa and Canada, like some of the deepest mines in the world are up to like down to four, four kilometers at depth. And so, uh, and then in these places when people, you know, mine, often they'll hit some kind of fracture and that fracture will flow water. And there's like, turns out there's like a lot of water in these fractures. You can, you can hit one and you kind of just tap this like, like underground and hydrological system and it will keep flowing for like a decade and it's kind of uh, an issue <laughs> okay. it, it, it's an issue but, but but also like a really interesting thing is like what is this water and where you know like where does it come from so people have collected you know samples of these waters in the deep mines and uh, have found again surprisingly that it like is full of this chemosynthetic life uh, that is you know also again like uh, getting hydrogen from something 
Um, and yeah, I think especially uh, puzzling, uh, these observations have been in places where we don't have these kind of, you know, igneous rocks, like these iron rich rocks where we can produce hydrogen in uh, uh, by reacting with water. And so the question is like, how is that now living here, you know, at, at, at these depths? Um, and so the, sec the second way then, you know, like that yeah, brings me to that kind of second source of hydrogen uh, geological hydrogen is uh, radiolytic hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it is produced essentially by radioactive decay of uh, radio elements. And so there are radio elements such as uranium, thorium, potassium that are kind of in trace amounts in rocks kind of everywhere. And, and it's quite like homogeneously distributed. So it sort of, yeah, we have like a similar amount of uranium just about everywhere, except maybe some places where it's enriched. And so these radio elements decay kind of very slowly. And uh, as, as they decay, they sort of emit this, um, yeah, they emit this ionizing radiation. And if there's like a water molecule in the vicinity that, that can split the water molecule, it can produce all kinds of compounds, like including hydrogen. Uh, so again, this is like the kind of the production of, of hydrogen through radiolysis wasn't like, you know, in terms of physics and everything, it was kind of a, a new concept. But then the idea that you could, you know, just with trace amounts of, of these radio elements, you could produce it at some kind of rate where it could sustain an ecosystem, uh, especially an ecosystem in the subsurface that is like entirely separated again from photosynthesis yeah. and somehow lives there for, you know, millions of years has been like really new and um, and so people haven't quite considered of you know how much hydrogen do we can we actually produce like where is this water how much of it there is like is it close to these radio elements and so yeah after discovering these life forms you kind of have to explain of like how do they live there and so yeah people then have like done an assessment of sort of um, they're really hydrogen and it turns out again that there's, there's actually like a, a lot of it is being produced. We have a lot of water in the subsurface and it is being produced slowly, but at a rate that is good enough essentially for these microbial ecosystems to kind of live entirely independent life to, you know, photosynthetic life. And, and again, the subsurface is full of this chemosynthetic life. Um, so, so yeah, so there the, are the two sources. So we have it all, you know, under the sea, and we have it um, in the subsurface and the continents. And yeah, it's primarily just been studied, and like I have studied it in in this kind of context, where I just find it fascinating that you know life mm. somehow lives on this. And the question is how, and especially in the continents, the production is very slow, and so the, some of these forms of life are really fascinating. And um, in, in that they have like these really slow metabolisms. They sort of like divide a cell like once in a thousand years and they have these lifespans wow. that are like really long. And, you know, there's a kind of like, it's, it's still an open question of like how how long do they live? And some people um, seem to think that, you know, they, they can like live on kind of geological timescales where somehow part of their uh, evolution strategy is to kind of move with plates and go through <laughs> different environments. So, yeah, I mean, it, but it's, it, that's a tangent. <laughs> but anyway, that, that is kind of like, I guess, where, where the research has been. And so like how, I guess, what brings us to then thinking about this as a resource is that in some of these places um, where we have samples, you know, from the deep surface, we also have found where uh, there is just hydrogen in the molecular form. We, we do have fractures somewhere. 
uh, in in various places mm-hmm. where hydrogen exists and none of this life that is so you know energy constrained has managed to consume it and and uh, so yeah so that's that's interesting that's interesting then in terms of like uh, finding places where something else is essentially inhibiting the microbes and uh, you know maybe they can't consume it and so Essentially, like the, the, the hydrogen that's pre- produced on Earth, I think for the most part, it is, you know, part of this ecosystem. It's produced, it's consumed at the same rate. There's an ecosystem around it. Uh-huh. And then there are special cases, like in the same way as with everything, you know, enjoy, like with oil and gas or anything, you know, oil and gas is like most of, you know, you'll, you'll produce um, gas from these organic compounds and it will just diffuse through water and escape somewhere but if you have a seal then you might capture it and that's mm-hmm. you know a special case where you can um, drill and so the same the same is true for hydrogen like for the most part it's consumed by microbes and in some places it isn't and uh, yeah like I guess when all of like us you know we've kind of learned more and more about hydrogen People have kind of looked back at at the literature record of observations, and turns out that we have like very many observations actually of hydrogen in molecular form, like occurring in say again by accident found in, like in in gas fields where it's kind of mixed with hydrocarbons, and you know people just didn't think much of it. Or there there are hydrogen seeps in, uh, on the surface, for instance in Turkey you can like find hydrogen seeps, and so there are actually very many observations around the world. Uh, and for the most part, people didn't really think much about it or and attributed the source to something like kind of way lower scale and something that doesn't you know quite imply that this could be a resource. And so there's been a, this kind of big reassessment of um, what we have observed around the world, and and, uh, and yeah, we have observed that in, in, in a lot of places it can actually be preserved and and not consumed by microbes. And so that's kind of uh, where we are now, uh, sort of, I've learned a lot about how it's produced and how it's consumed. And we're really starting to, to find places where it isn't and yeah, doing, doing research into finding places where it can be not just like not consumed, but also um, stored and, you know, sort of concentrated and stored in some kind of way where we could easily drill and, and sort of just explore it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, as you say, like, if it just seeps out, and you know, it, it may not be consumed by microbes, but if it kind of just seeps out in really kind of low quantities and yeah, it, it's no good. But it, yeah, it, it is super interesting that despite all these signs, it kind of wasn't, it, you know, as I, as I mentioned, like there's various sources which say, or either just flatly that hydrogen doesn't exist like on its own mm-hmm. in natural form, or that it's typically uh, not, on its own which is like a very fair that that's probably true i mean there's a load of water on the planet right so to say that it, the typical form of hydrogen is combined with with oxygen i think is a fairly state uh, safe but um bland statement but yeah it's so it is fascinating that it wasn't observed more i think one of the things that struck me was that just no one was looking for it. And in fact, the kind of mm-hmm. chromatography techniques that are used. So this way of determining what gases or chemicals are, are present in a in a substance used hydrogen as a medium, if I if I understand correctly. So it was like which meant essentially that it was it was kind of like the substance that was used to kind of dissolve all the other gases in. Um, so of course you'd expect to see hydrogen, right? But it's not <laughs> you kind of designed those equipment searching for 
you know, seeing what you had in a in a in terms of methane coming out of a vent or something. It was designed to look for everything else apart from hydrogen. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, no one was really, yeah, I guess no, no one was interested in in looking for it. There's there is a story you must know this about Mendeleev who who found in reported that he'd found hydrogen or in a kind of um, mine in Ukraine or something. So yeah, originator of the um, periodic table knew about this. So <laughs> it's like, it, it shouldn't be new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so there, there's way more kind of observations of natural occurrence of it. So yeah, as you say, like, you know, it's it kind of, like our kind of understanding, especially of surface, because it's so hard. It's so hard to mass observe things, you know, like say various things at the surface. Now we can use satellites and we can, you know, you can like collect mm-hmm. a lot of data and then we can think about later what we want to get from this data. And, you know, potentially we can find things way in the future about what we've already collected. But like with the subsurface, it's always like so intentional. You're going to go look for something and you're going to measure something relevant to what you're looking for. And you know, for the most part, it's, it's been oil and gas. <laughs> People have been trying to find hydrocarbons. And so, yeah, it's really ha- haven't been collecting data on, on hydrogen. And even like in terms of the measurements that exist, like often from the oil industry, um, yeah, the, the kind of data sets can, you know, are quite unreliable. Like also, you know, it, it's not really incentivized that you need to have like really great precision on some of these measurements. It's just if you found mm. some methane, that's great. You can run these other measurements. It doesn't matter if they're wrong. And so like a lot of what's reported is kind of like, you know, questionable quality. But there are like way more observations of hydrogen in a kind of the sort of, I guess, geographical area of like the former um, USSR. Uh, because mm. they, they did, uh, they, they, there was a theory there of Russian scientists, but they had a theory that hydrocarbons are produced inorganically somehow, and, and there's like hydrogen involved in this, and it, it's produced like by, you know, reaction of hydrogen and CO2. So so it's way, way more documented there um, because they've been looking for it. And, and so, yeah, now that we have like a hydrogen kind of, well, we've, yes, have these maps of where hydrogen has been observed. It seems like, oh, it's just been like in Europe somewhere. <laughs> and it is because like where people have been looking for it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is, it's kind of interesting observation bias. And and the same is true for like finding it in a subsurface. So there there have been accidental discoveries um, with oil and gas or like an interesting example, well, which, which is actually our, our first and only so far uh, commercial hydrogen field in Mali mm-hmm. in Africa. Uh, where there is like an active, you know, hydrogen, there is like 99% hydrogen discovered in the subsurface at the depth of 100 meters, which <laughs> is wow. quite different, you know, for, for where you would look or something. And yeah, people have just drilled a borehole looking for groundwater, it's a groundwater borehole, um, and have like struck hydrogen uh, unexpectedly and also. Yeah, I think that the account of it is sort of, you know, we drilled a borehole and there was wind coming out of it and it was confusing. And then somebody, like, unfortunately, like, lit a cigarette and, and had, had, like, mm. <laughs> suffered a serious injury from it. And, and then I think they, they shut in the borehole and only, like, some years after, um, the company came in and started developing it. So... Uh, where 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 it does occur, it tends to be different places to where oil and gas occurs. So therefore, even though we drilled so many wells for oil and gas, only in some instances we found hydrogen. Because mo- for the most part, you know, from what we know about how it's produced, we we expect it to be somewhere else. 
Um, so, so yeah, so that's, you know, again, another reason we're not, we're not measuring for it. And also we're kind of looking for things where it probably isn't is why we haven't seen very much of it. Yeah. And it's, it's like odorless, colorless, very, very low density. So it's, it's kind of hard to see, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to talk about just before we get on to sort of like the, the nuts and bolts of how, how, you know, how much we could extract and where we might look for it. One other like really curious thing I came across was as kind of evidence that there's hydrogen is these kind of fairy rings, uh, which go by different names. Mm -hmm. They also get called Carolina Bays in the States and fairy circles and so forth. Um, So maybe just tell us about those because this was like another is this. I mean, there's so many likes tiny like tidbits like you know mini mind-blowing nuggets <laughs> in, the, in the search for <laughs> hydrogen and this was one of them so yeah tell us about fairy rings yeah so i mean fairy rings um fairy rings are these kind of circular depressions on, on the surface uh, and you can see them from satellites uh, essentially and it, i think the the kind of uh, you know the the really big incentive to like really focus on, on fairy rings was because the, the mali discovery uh, was associated with fairy ring there, mm. there's a fairy ring there and there's hydrogen seeping at the surface so there's observation of of this uh, formation and essentially what it is and it, it's, it's something like a form where you have deep fluids that you know through some kind of fault and fracture system are coming to the surface um, and so that they will form this kind of circular depression and emanate from, from the surface. And um, yeah, so uh, the Mali discovery, you know, is associated with fearing that is associated with actual hydrogen observations at the surface. Um, and so then people start looking for them, you know, as indicators for hydrogen. And I guess like the, the usefulness of that is, um, I think still, you know, to, to really kind of be, <laughs> be proven because Mm. Like really, like quite a lot of them exist uh, around the world, and it's not something that you expect only. If, you know, if if hydrogen is part of the fluid that migrates, it's actually something that you you know you can't expect forming at the surface if some kind of deep saline brine is migrating through the fracture network. And so, like we are expecting, you know, to see hydrogen in these deep saline brines. That, that's, you know, like we're associating with these deep saline brines in the subsurface and if they are mobilized to the surface. Uh, but also you can just have a migration of this brine without the hydrogen and still form fairy rings. <laughs> so it, it, it is not necessarily kind of an indicator, yeah. Okay, so the, the fairy rings are probably more associated with or caused by these kind of saline brines, which I guess kind of dissolve some of the minerals below them and that's why you get this depression i think there's also like a kind of like change in the vegetation as well which presumably is like associated with the salinity but yeah i guess farrowings are sort of like you know uh, a sign that there might be hydrogen but it might just be saline uh like brine on its own yeah, exactly. And so also, you know, that then, you know, people have detected hydrogen at, at the at sort of the soil gas uh, in Mali. And so there have been a lot of efforts of measuring hydrogen in various other fairy rings. And uh, yeah, for the most, like, I guess, yeah, if, if you, you're going to go around and measure all of it, I think it can provide a lot of clarity. But often, you know, people do measure trace amounts of hydrogen which can actually come from these like very shallow kind of biogenic sources, like again, just sort of mm. microbial surface processes. So you can have a fairy ring and then measure also some hydrogen. And then again, that like will not indicate that it necessarily is coming from depth. You know, that might indicate something quite shallow. Um, so yeah, like the evidence for kind of necessarily using fairy rings uh, 
for exploration is like a little bit mixed. Uh, but but yeah, you know, it it, it is yeah. a feature it's that, that you know, can in, be in but isn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so how do we? So where do you go looking? Right. What are the promising yeah, places so, for? Yeah, so so the places are again, you know, these kind of places where we can expect uh, these water rock reactions or um, or radiolithic uh, production of hydrogen, and so. There are like really like a, very many places in the world where there's some of these ingredients are there. And yeah, the question is like to find a place with all of the ingredients, you know, with the production and with like a trap and seal and some kind of system where also the microbes have been prevented from, you know, having having their lunch. <laughs> so um, like w- w- one of the type of places is looking at cratons. So cratons mm-hmm. are these kind of... Um, on continental crust are these areas uh, where essentially it's some of the like oldest rocks and um, on earth where we have these rocks that have been part of continental crust for billions of years and they have been tectonically like fairly stable and so these are sort of examples uh, that are similar to these observations that we had of, of both hydrogen and fractures and also microbial life in say south africa or canada and they're like really there's there's a lot of you know different cratons on, on sort of in, on every continent and um, but uh, so what's what would be very good for production of radiolithic hydrogen is having this kind of tectonic environment where you have deep fluids and these rocks that are sort of stable for a very long time and also because the radiolysis is a slow process uh, mm. that you would be able to accumulate this hydrogen for a very long time and then kind of not lose it by sort of tectonic mm-hmm. activity and, and fracturing and things like that. So, yeah, like one, one type of place is looking for really old, kind of ancient, very stable continental crust uh, where we had time to accumulate it for, for long periods of time. And then perhaps ideally combined with maybe like te- some some tectonic activity, not too much, has <laughs> some mm. amount of tectonic activity uh, at some point, perhaps not not too um, long ago, uh, where it, it it would mobilize in these fluids, mm-hmm. it kind of to some formation above it, and um, yeah, but but there are yeah very very different kind of ways of thinking about also like the reservoir rock for hydrogen because we can think about it in a more kind of similar way to oil and gas where you know these cratons are our source rocks and then we need to mobilize into some kind of you know porous sandstone with like a seal on top um but at the same time it, it is also possible to think about like fractured kind of basement rock as as the reservoir um, so yeah, so it's so a one one kind of uh, exploration strategy is looking for a really like old stable tectonic crust, and then uh, you know secondly is the is the water rock reactions. So finding areas where you have these ultramafic mafic rocks and and water, and so then the advantage of these systems is that the reactions can be way faster. So you potentially don't mm-hmm. have to wait two billion years for for generating your hydrogen. And also, like what's what's kind of in your favor is then if you are producing it this quickly, then potentially you know uh, there's too much of it. You know the the kind of uh, ecosystems are going to then be limited by something else than hydrogen. You know it might be too mm. much hydrogen, but you're limited by say CO2 or something, and so then the microbes can't like keep up with the consumption. 
Um, and yeah, and so like the both both the kind of uh, they, they tend to be in quite different you know places in a world where you have these the, these type of um, kind of igneous rocks and the old uh, cratonic crust. Um, yeah, but yeah, in, in terms of the then the reaction rates of of the water rock reactions, we know that it's it's faster, it's faster than reanalysis, but also like the range kind of of like how fast these reactions can happen is kind of not very well sort of understood. Like it, it can range mm -hmm. from very slow to very fast. And we just, yeah, we don't quite have enough research um, of sort of really quantifying it and, and especially mm -hmm. quantifying the important factors of like what makes it very fast uh, and what makes it very slow. So yeah, again, this is like uh, the sort of a field of research that that is uh, really happening. But I mean, I mean, it is what, yeah. So it is really, um, yeah, unusual to think that this could be kind of almost like a renewable. Like if if, if so, the radiolysis is one thing that's super slow. That's in the cradons, but the kind of serpentinization um, route for creating hydrogen, where you've got the the water reacting with kind of uh, iron and minerals that keeps on going so you could have a mine mm -hmm. and as you say we don't know how fast it is and what makes it fast or what makes it slow quite yet but you, you could have a mine which just kind of keeps on refilling itself in, in in principle as long as you know the water keeps uh coming along and you know there's still left <laughs> still enough minerals there yeah. but there's kind of no reason to think that just can keep yeah producing hydrogen i guess yeah, I think, well, that's been a proposed theory for the Mali discovery because they have been producing it now for like uh, about, uh, about a decade, I think, and, and they've not observed any pressure drops. So it seems like, you know, they keep uh, extracting hydrogen and more of it is coming up. <laughs> so, yeah, w one of the one of the proposals is that it's because it's actually like renewing in kind of real time. And mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, I'm not quite in favor of that. Like there is definitely like a lot of uncertainty in terms of, you know, the reaction rates, but... I think mm -hmm. there's maybe like not not quite the evidence to suggest that they're going to be that fast, you know, like it's sort of mm -hmm. human time scales. And <laughs> um, because it, like, I suppose like the main kind of, you know, limitation of the, in, in terms of kinetics is like the, the reaction can happen quickly. Uh, yeah, if, if you have these sort of iron rich rocks and you, you expose it to water, it will probably happen very quickly, but but then it will like react out and it will stop and, and kind of what, what makes the reaction happen again and so usually i think it is something to do with creating new surface area you know like fracturing that rock a bit more so you have uh -huh. water like percolating a bit deeper and so it can continue reacting and so like i, I don't think this necessarily happens at human time scales but i think potentially what might be happening is that you know, there is like a reservoir of this gas that it is actually filling these other more shallow reservoirs. And so the more you extract from more shallow reservoir, like more more comes from the deeper reservoir or something like that. So the potentially just like what what they're tapping into is is probably just way bigger maybe than 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 uh, is kind of fought right now. But but yeah, like I I think like it's definitely really interesting in in terms of serpentinization that the reaction can happen fast. I think we're not quite at a place where, you know, it might just sort of keep going uh, if we keep mm. extracting it. Mm. 
But then there is also this kind of interesting proposal of, um, again, yet another color of hydrogen called orange hydrogen, <laughs> where where it would be like a like an industrial process where you would find these rocks that uh, you know would produce ser serpentine and inject yourself, you know, like fluid, water, with CO2 as well, actually. So it's like a combined, mm -hmm. you produce hydrogen and sequester CO2 at the same time. And I in guess this the kind CO2 of situation, stopped your yeah. microbes from, probably the microbes don't like the CO2 too much. Is that one of the reasons to do that as well? Uh, well, it, it is just a sort of, because then, like if you just produce hydrogen, you produce a serpentine mineral. But also then if you add CO2, then the serpentine mineral can react with the CO2 and you can then like form carbonate minerals. So yeah, the, the main the main kind of incentive for this is to combine both like, you know, sequestration or okay. production of hydrogen. But yeah, We're in, bringing it all I guess together. like, yeah, this is yeah. Great. yeah it's, it's, it's great. Like, I mean, I do like orange hydrogen, <laughs> but yeah, in, in this case where, you know, like, if it is like some kind of more engineered process and we are controlling, well, maybe like we keep fracturing this rock, right? And mm -hmm. keep opening new spaces by injecting. It is, I think, something that, that can, you know, can, can then, then be renewable. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it is, it's something to really be shown. But yeah, I think it, it is also really promising in this, especially this kind of combined effect. Yeah. It Maybe, uh, I mean, fracking's got a bit of a bad reputation, but is it a kind of similar process to fracking? But, you know, instead of instead of taking carbon and putting it into the air, you're actually putting it underground and instead of getting methane out, you're getting, you're getting hydrogen, which again, is not going to put... Yeah, yeah, not gonna put yeah I mean, it, it would essentially be a similar process. Yeah, so it, it is it is induced kind of fracturing of the subsurface and yeah, the risks and all kinds of things associated with it are, you know, similar that obviously you, you want to create some fractures, you don't want to create too many, you want to predict mm -hmm. where that happens, you don't want to create any earthquakes. So yeah, the implementation of all of this and um, and yeah, like what kind of depths you're going to be operating in because there is like a temperature window where these reactions happen. And um, yeah, like all, all of that is associated with the same kind of, you know, um, risks and, and having to, to mitigate them as fracking. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like yeah, maybe yeah. The, the, the kind of better part of it is, you know, if it, because it is essentially like the, the kind of rock is quite different. And so if you if you end up like having sort of unintended fracturing and fluid movement, well, at least it's like not methane that's coming up to your drinking water. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's an important point. And I mean, there's kind of risks with many things. It's just with fracking at the moment, there doesn't seem to be much reward, right? You get, okay, you get methane, which is like, you know, you can you can sell that, but it's certainly not great for the uh, atmosphere. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just I, a way, like official to... way of extracting. Yeah, I mean, it, oh, it's it's really bad. I think certainly there's like something that's really underestimated is is because you create all these new fractures, then you kind of really increase the rate of just diffuse leakage. Like you know, mm. you don't necessarily have leaks where there's like a you know like gas is just bubbling up through a big fault, but you're you're really increasing diffuse leakage just everywhere, kind of to the surface to to the point where it's not really monitored and. I think, yeah, it, it does really, again, just contribute to this kind of like slow background emissions to the atmosphere, like a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll probably need a new label for orange hydrogen production. Let's <laughs> call it orange hydrogen production and, and move away from the, 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 the fracking history as, um, yeah, as you say, it's different rocks in, in any case. But yeah, that's, that, that's so, I mean, yeah, we now have different 
places to look. There's kind of the cratons. There's the places where we think supplementation can be happening. We have at least one example of that in in, in Mali. So you know, th- this is like this is not sci-fi, right? Th- there is hydrogen there. It's mm-hmm. actually being used, as you say. This is a kind of commercial operation that's that's running there. Uh, and then we think we could. I guess if, if we were to produce orange hydrogen, would, would that open up a lot the kinds of places that this could work? Or would it sort of be more weather serpentinization? You can speed that up. Yeah. How does that look? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, again, that's just, you know, targeting, like, I, yeah, that, that's just really targeting the, the type of geology, you know, and, and seeing where it could work. And like, I guess even... Like what, what I think could be an exciting avenue for this, if say like if you are drilling and exploring for, you, you're hoping that there's going to be this natural hydrogen produced by natural serpentinization. And so you're kind of targeting these ultra mythic rocks um, and you, you drill and perhaps like you don't find hydrogen, well, maybe you can then just make it, right? <laughs> so it can be like a combined thing. Well, if you didn't find it, but the right geology is there and that's why you drilled, well, perhaps you can then inject water and, and, and kind of make it yourself with CO2 perhaps, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think these, these are kind of like in, interesting combinations of, of both, like maybe in terms of exploration strategy, how you can kind of combine and, and reduce risk of, of what the operation is going to be and you know how, how you're going to utilize the, like resources. And are there a lot of, I mean, Oh, there are quite a lot of places where this could work. The sort of thing I'm thinking is one of the real, I think of it like this, like, so to, to sort of get hydrogen really off the ground, you need, there's like the, the cost of, you know, in the kind of electrolysis world of hydrogen production, you've got the energy cost of electrolyzing stuff. You've got the capital expenditure associated with creating all those electrolyzers and also fuel cells as well. But, but let's just think about, about the production. And I think that counts for, uh, I was reading in the FT and you sent this article, so <laughs> you're probably familiar with the figures. Mm-hmm. So the FT projects that sort of about three quarters of the cost of kind of building a hydrogen economy, which they they kind of estimate a hydrogen economy would would sort of cover about, about 10% of our energy would, would, would come from hydrogen. And, and so, you know, a lot of that would be, or some of that would be fertilizers and then There'd be other things, but I guess the point is, yeah, it's kind of three quarters or so of the the cost of building that is associated with just producing hydrogen. Um, but then there's another quarter which is associated with all the infrastructure that you need to work with hydrogen because it doesn't go through our normal pipes without modification. Like you have to compress it, you have to figure out how to move it around, and, and so on. Um, so that's still like a, a really substantial um, chunk of money. And and clearly, like the the sort of geological hydrogen has the potential to really reduce that three quarters cost, so the the cost of producing it. But I'm also wondering, like, if this is something that could could run in many different locations. Like, could you collate? Could you put it near like a cement plant, right? And 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 then use it as your hydrogen source for that. Or could you put it near like the fertilizer production sources again or or is it you know will we still have to build a pretty substantial infrastructure for say moving hydrogen from mali to germany and things like that yeah no like uh, definitely in, in terms of you know like uh, geology where it's possible it, it is 
yeah, like the, the, there are many like potential locations uh, on a planet where it could work. So there's a lot of different combinations of what you could combine or associate, you know, like these kind of Precambrian like rocks that the rocks are older than say 500 million years that, that are often uh, seen as sort of the good source rocks. They, they cover most of the continent, you know, something like 70% of the subsurface okay. is sort of these sort of rocks. So there's there's a lot, right? And as well as these, uh, you know, iron rich rocks. And then like the, the first estimate is, you know, there's, there's a lot and then you keep kind of, um, you know, sort of excluding places. So like, uh, where is it going to be trapped? Where is it going to be not con consumed? And then finally, like in terms of any exploration, like a really big factor, and especially starting any new kind of, you know, sort of project is also finding a place where it would be close to some kind of like industry or some kind of infrastructure where, as you say, like, is it close to where we produce fertilizers? Because we don't want to, you know, transport it like halfway through the world and then it's going to become just like very expensive and, and, and not really worth it. Um, but yeah, I think like the kind of variety of, of geological terrain that is suitable does definitely map out to like a lot of different options of what you can combine it with. And I guess another thing that I haven't sort of touched on is helium, uh, which again is like, is, is, you know, is like super useful gas that we are exploring for. Um, it is, it's a noble gas, inert gas that's used a lot in kind of in, in high tech kind of industry. Um, and again, you know, the sources of it is in the subsurface and it has been mostly found by accident and, and kind of trace amounts mm -hmm. of hydrocarbons. But from what we know of how it is produced and so how hydrogen is produced, like the places where we expect to, to find hydrogen, we also expect to find actually high concentrations of helium. So, so there is this kind of also incentive of combined essentially we're, yeah, we're expecting to find both these gases and if we can tap into markets where, you know, both of them can be shipped to somewhere close by, I think that really like makes it like a compelling economic model. Yeah. And of course, where this, I mean, coming back to the kind of beginning of the discussion is, you know, these are going to be CapEx high projects, like we're going to have to invest a lot, but they're you know, there is a very clear incentive to do so, right? Because if you can get out hydrogen and even better, also get, get some helium as well, that that's, I think the interesting thing about helium is it's historically had a very low price because we've just like over, overmined it, but <laughs> that price is probably going to go up uh, as like our reserves have drawn down. So yeah, there's lots of reason for the sorts of... Uh, kind of deploy those expensive technologies which i guess we can repurpose from the oil and mm -hmm. gas industry right we know how to drill big holes <laughs> we know how to yeah. search for things underground like there's lots of reason to bring that to this quest and and actually instead of taking out carbon from the the ground and putting it into the atmosphere we take out something which is uh no carbon at all just hydrogen but yeah nonetheless great source of fuel so yeah, that, that that's yeah. super promising. Well, I guess like one thing that I think I, I think is really exciting for me about hydrogen, natural hydrogen, is actually like it, it is in such a different kind of boat to you know CO two storage, where like CO two storage is you know this kind of thing we we have to do, and it's big and it's gonna mm. you know require a lot of investment, and we're gonna see payback because it makes sense. You know, we're gonna have to do negative emissions at some point, and it just it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in in the kind of this very like fast economic kind of, you know, 
sort of way of thinking where like when is it going to pay off it's going to pay off you know when we don't die from the seals boiling <laughs> uh, but in terms of the natural hydrogen um it, it is actually like cheap you know it, it is like not more expensive to explore for it than it is for natural gas and uh, the cost of then of energy you know energy from hydrogen if if it's natural it is just like way lower than, than green hydrogen and so kind of producing hydrogen from you know like exploring for methane essentially or exploring just for hydrogen would be like a similar cost but then if you also get mm -hmm. your hydrogen by splitting the methane that is actually additional cost so just finding it straight yeah. up um like as so it is bit, now yeah. you know if it yeah if, if i found you know right now some hydrogen it would be like a very profitable thing <laughs> immediately so it doesn't really rely on like subsidies it doesn't really rely on mm. like the government having to sort of provide some kind of special infrastructure uh, so it is something that essentially like at the scale that we are we have now it is like immediately profitable because it can already mm -hmm. compete with hydrogen from hydrocarbons and then in terms of like you know if if it's if hydrogen if we're going to have some kind of uh, level of hydrogen economy if it if our demand is going to increase from where it is now then you know uh, there they can be all this thinking about exactly like how we're going to integrate it and how much is it going to cost and how does it compare to alternatives say like just you know electrifying things yeah but yeah i think like the the cool thing about it is like for right now like it just makes sense economically as it is <laughs> yeah we're, we're running over time and i need to let you get back to your day job which is actually <laughs> kind of this right? <laughs> looking for hydrogen <laughs> so, looking for hydrogen exactly and i don't know because i know this is something that's you know, that you're working for a kind of newly incorporated company and it's kind of a little bit under wraps but i think it's kind of important to get the message across that this is not just an academic discussion. Like there are people who are looking for this. You're one of them. I don't know how much you can say about what you're doing. Like, are you shipping out to different countries or are you kind of on your laptop trying to <laughs> like look at, I don't know, read through papers of where hydrogen has been spotted? Like, how does it work? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, it, it is really exciting. So I, I have been in, in academia. I've been a postdoc uh, uh, for like last four years and I've just started now working in this new startup that is, you know, super new and uh, it, it is very exciting. And it, right now I am the only employee <laughs> other, <laughs> other than, you know, the, the founders and the board, and um, which is very exciting. Uh, we were just starting it. But yeah, essentially, um, the idea has been just, you know, as I've been talking about this academic research, there is like a lot of a lot of knowledge in the academic community of like how hydrogen is produced, where we can find it. And it just has always like we have studied it from like a really like different perspective with like really different questions in mind. And now that, you know, like it just sort of happens, so that it has attracted a lot of attention generally as a field. Um, uh, yeah, like all, all sort of like senior academics have like just had a lot of interest from the industry for advice and consultancy and consulting and things like that of like, how can we find hydrogen? So the startup essentially is is a product of that is is a sort of an acad like it's it's a spin out company from from research at Oxford University and, and other universities where we academics are you know, we're like, well, I think we have a pretty good idea, actually probably better than there's other people of where we can find hydrogen and we're going to just do it ourselves. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the perfect, the, the, the work that I'm doing right now, it, it is essentially a kind of like a data-driven approach that we are assessing 
all kinds of evidence uh, in terms of data that's you know freely available uh, or you know in, in literature or in various data sets that you can sort of find of uh, essentially trying to build like both like a model uh, like conceptual model of like how we you know what is not only the generation but kind of the preservation and trapping uh, conceptual model that is kind of like a little bit similar to you know what, what has been developed in the hydrocarbon industry for oil and gas you know there's this kind of concept of where we need to look so we're, we're building that as well as kind of assessing the entire world for what we think um it would be uh, would be a good idea to go look for it and and once we make those decisions we're gonna we're gonna go and do it <laughs> oh, that is it. yeah that that's cool so yeah so yeah you will be hopefully you'll end up going somewhere nice sunny rather than sort of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's super exciting yeah this has been really eye-opening i mean this yeah uh, I, i've always been a little bit skeptical about the hydrogen economy but i think you've made some really good points i mean one is just like there's a lot of stuff where we're using hydrogen already we can replace it and i think it is a game changer in the equation if we can you know create that hydrogen or, or obtain that hydrogen without having to um consume other electricity which could be you know energy that could be used for other things so yeah this is yeah really exciting completely yeah groundbreaking literally <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't know if you have any uh final thoughts anything you'd like to share maybe a call to action for more geologists now to kind of repair the damage <laughs> that has <laughs> historically been uh, a lot to answer for <laughs> yeah no i think uh, i think it is just like what has been really motivating for me with all of this work you know like um CO2 storage or this exploration um, of hydrogen is that there are things that we can do, you know, in, in a kind of proactive way of trying to find solutions. And I know there's, you know, a lot of a lot of people working on all kinds of solutions. And I think it's just really cool. And like, you know, none of them, like, I guess, like what I find a lot in, in all kinds of discussions and articles is where you have some kind of technology and then it's being compared to a different technology and be like, oh, this one can't do it. It's the other one that will have to do it because it's kind of better. But uh, I guess like I just have this like really agnostic uh, kind of approach to it sort of really doesn't matter of, you know, like what we end up using in decarbonizing mm. the economy. And it's just like whatever turns out to be most optimal. And we need to work on all of those things and then find out which one is most optimal, you know, where and say with the hydrogen economy, like, I think it is probably true that, you know, if, if we are thinking about replacing our gas networks in, you know, natural gas and hydrogen, there are a lot of like uh, kind of it, it, there are a lot of risks and especially like a lot of infrastructure kind of, you know, you do actually have to replace like a lot of a lot of the pipeline because yeah. <laughs> because it, it isn't, you know, it, it leads to like embrittlement of, of steel. And so, you know, it is like a good idea. And then you have to do some feasibility studies and then maybe conclude that actually this is not the best way to use hydrogen. Let's use something else for this. And then like, let's find the best way to use hydrogen where it is most optimal. So, yeah, I think in all of those things, um, like all of those things, you know, are part of the solution. Like, um, and it's just exactly like doing research and then finding 
what's the best way to do them? And then it's going to fall into place, like what makes sense in actual application of, of how to deploy them, you know, because it is like such a huge task of decarbonizing entire economy. And it's going to just by default require so many like different small applications in, in different areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Like a kind of no holds barred approach. And I, I think one thing that I've learned from, you know, looking at the progress over the last decades is that it's not obvious ahead of time what's going to work. Like, again, like we've learned so much from deploying, like renewable energy has dropped beyond, you know, the, yeah. the cost of producing renewable energy has dropped beyond their expectations. And it's just because we've learned every time we've produced, like every time we've built a factory <laughs> or, you know, produced more a batch of panels, like things have been learned. And, you know, that's happened. That's not just happened with solar panels. I always use that example, but it's it, it's been happening with battery technology. It's been happening with, with wind. You know, electrolysis, I think it will happen there. And fuel cells, it will happen there as long as, you know, so we shouldn't close off any of these approaches. And yeah, so yeah, I, I'm excited to see, like, this is this is a very nascent one. This is a completely new thing. And yeah. It could lead could lead anywhere. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, no, I think it's that's a really exciting thing for me because, again, like, you know, we have, like, very good evidence to think there is hydrogen, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how much we can find. You know, maybe we can find something that's, like, locally significant and then, you know, we can, like, have some clean energy locally. Maybe we can find something that's hugely significant globally. And, uh, and like, there's kind of no downside because also, like, in the very worst case that we kind of find out that, oh, there isn't, you know, economically yeah. feasible it's just then, you know, we invested some money to test out this concept and we have an answer and we can move on to something else, right? So it's just, it just makes sense to like explore all avenues where you have evidence to think that it could be really significant. Indeed. And on that note, I think I need to <laughs> let you get back to doing just that, exploring. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much, uh, Ruta. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great to, to talk to you. <laughs>